Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is my medical director, Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And today, quick warning, if you're wanting COVID-19 content, beware. This is non-COVID content, or at least, at best, COVID-adjacent. And if you're as sick of COVID-19 as we are here at MCHD, hopefully this will be a welcome break for you. And we're going to hit rewind and go back for the MCHD listeners out there to a recent uh, continuing education topic that we hit on to try to reinforce some of these uh, high points. And we're going to discuss the pediatric general assessment triangle or the approach to assessing uh, the pediatric patients. And realistically, this is, you know, a super vulnerable group of patients and especially those that can't communicate with us. That's, you know, we're not really talking about 16 and 17 year olds here. You know, they can tell us where the pain started and when it started. They can describe, you know, radiation of the pain. They can uh, tell us how many times they vomited. We're really going to be focusing more on children that aren't old enough to communicate yet, especially the neonates, the infants into toddler age. And these often strike fear into all emergency providers because thankfully kids are resilient and they don't get super sick very often. But when they do, it can be definitely a, a frightening and harrowing experience. So like everything else we discussed, it's always good to have a framework, a foundation to approach these patients. And the pediatric assessment triangle is you know, in every textbook and every, you know, every general pediatric lecture. And we're going to take each side of the triangle, talk about each of those individually, and then sort of step back and look at, once we look at appearance, work of breathing, circulation, and we do the exam and the historical features that are necessary for each of those sides, then how do we take those sides as a whole and decide who's sick and who's not sick? So before we go into the triangle itself, vital, I've I feel, to introduce the MCHD Pediatric Law of Emergency Care. This one is uh, definitely stolen from Dr. Dixon. It is his, and I, I stand by it 100% and think it's totally vital. But tell the non-MCHD listeners out there your, your pediatric law of the exam. Thanks, Casey. You can't properly assess any of these kids we've been talking about, So these, especially these neonates and toddlers. They can't communicate with us. They're swaddled up in a bunch of clothes and maybe tucked away in a car seat and there's two blankets on top. Think about what we're missing there potentially. We can't really assess their general appearance. We can't assess for retractions and work of breathing. Um, we can't assess their, their skin for rashes and petechiae and all these other potential things we can miss. So just to, to add on to that, you take that swaddled toddler and maybe the, the chief complaints are respiratory complaint. We can miss retractions. We can miss increased work of breathing. It's very difficult, and I do this in every infant and toddler that I examine. I sit there for a whole minute, and I count their respiratory rates. Very important, right? That may be the subtlest early finding in a lower airway disease, pneumonia, or an early sepsis. So other things that we can miss, non-accidental trauma, bruises of different ages, clear signs of pattern pattern bruising, things like that that would lead us to think, gosh, is there's some non-accidental trauma involved here. Other things I've seen missed by these swallowed up little kids, hernias, torus testicles, hair tourniquets, abscesses, and the list goes on and on and on. 
So I think it's the if you if you don't take anything away from this, please, 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 when you examine these children, give them a full and complete examination, starting with undressing them and looking at their general appearance and the assessment of each one of these sides of the pediatric assessment triangle. Appearance, work of breathing, and circulation. And Dr. Patrick's going to follow up with appearance and kind of go through some of the pearls that he looks for as he as he goes through that side of the triangle. I thought every respiratory rate was 20. What are you, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's you, what's on the chart, doctor. So you're counting the respiratory rate. Holy cow. Yeah, I'm that nerdy. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to back up into hair tourniquets real quick just because in in this discussion talking about the the crying infant, you know, the uncomfortable infant, hair tourniquets are often broached from a textbook standpoint and I I've been doing this for a while now, or at least longer than I'd like to admit. And I had my first hair tourniquet a week ago. I had never seen one. And uh, it was brought in as a, as a crying infant. And there was a hair tourniquet on, on the middle finger of the child. And the family hadn't, hadn't noticed it. And basically little, little babies, you know, their, their hair falls out. And mom's hair falls out too. And those hair can, uh, can you know, end up in the crib and wind their way around fingers, toes, penis, and, and young boys. And so it's uh, definitely something that if you don't look for, you're not going to see. So that leads us into the appearance of the child and being able to look at the child requires undressing them. And there's some things that, you know, when we think about appearance, how do we organize that? You know, what are the specific aspects of the exam we want to pay attention to? And first and foremost, just the general tone of the child, muscular tone. And, you know, realistically, that's, this is one that, probably should notice off the bat a floppy infant, but some things to think about, you know, there are some uh, reflexes, um, you know, some neonatal in infant reflexes that, that show up sometimes on, on exams and show up in the text. The startle reflex um, extinguishes over time as opposed to the Moreau reflex, which does not. Um, both of these are normal through six months. Um, so if those are not there in a six-month-old or less infant, uh, that can be, you know, concerning. Um, startle reflex can be um, elicited with noise. And one of the easy ways to to elicit. Um, you know, you can also basically, you know, drop the child in your hands. You know, from from a higher point to a lower point, and that can elicit those as well. Um, beware from a tone standpoint of the upside down U. So if you take a child and you hold them, hold the child by the belly. Right. The arms and legs should extend outward. You know, uh, they should the child shouldn't just flop into a U. So that's, you know, if you're if you're unsure, that's one kind of simple exam uh, approach to looking for abnormal tone. Can you describe for the listeners, Casey, what you see when you, you kind of describe the startle? What what should I expect in the normal child for these reflexes? You really, you see the arms and the legs extend out, you know, some extension into flexion. Um, and that really that's, um, you know, you should just kind of see the arms, arms and the leg flare out to the side, sort of in a kind of in a five point sort of pattern. So these, what Dr. Patrick's describing is three kind of different ways, but they're all assessing the same thing is what is the muscular tone of the child? So holding, holding by the tummy upside down, as he said, the, the extremities should extend. They shouldn't be floppy like a U or the, the reflexes that he talked about, the start or the Moreau reflex. And we'll, we'll include some links in the show notes so to some uh, uh, videos of these so that you can see, see them in action. Again, video, picture, worth 
thousand or even ten thousand words. Then just the general activity of the child, right? And this is when I was going through pediatric rotations as a as a student and a resident. This used to be really intimidating. My my daughter was born between med school and residency, so having had children now, these are sort of ingrained because you see it in your own children. Pre-children, these were tough. So for the younger medics out there without kids, knowing that the you know child sits up at six months, crawls at nine months, walks at a year ish, you know, there's plus or minuses there. Uh, these were always really hard for me to to group and to memorize. Then once you have your own, you're like, oh yeah, they sit up around six you know, roll, roll and crawl, you know, walk. And the order that that goes in is important, not because we're going to memorize as, as emergency providers these exact dates. It's just we need to be looking for age-appropriate activity in these children. And, for example, if you've got a, an 18-month-old kid that was walking yesterday and is not walking today, that's concerning, right? If you've got, you know, kind of veering off into the non-accidental trauma world, if a family member tells you that the two-month-old rolled off the changing table into the floor, that ought to sound some alarm bells as well because a two-month-old probably shouldn't be rolling off into the floor anywhere, anywhere because that's not developmentally appropriate at that point. That's too advanced for that child. So look for activity. Look, look at gaze. Babies should be able to track in the three-month range. So if you've got a six-month-old, they should be able to track. And oftentimes I'll just snap my fingers and they should, or you can use mom or dad. They'll often look for mom or dad more so than they will uh, you as a stranger. Um, and if even, even at less than three months when they shouldn't track, I should still be fairly midline. And if you see an, a marked deviation, you know, to the left or to the right and the child is altered, that should clue you into potential seizure activity. Uh, so tone, activity, gaze, also cry, right? The babies, babies sh should cry and should resist being examined. This is another one that sort of, you know, cry and tone go together in the exam. You know, oftentimes when I'm examining that 8 to 12, 14-month-old child and they're pushing me away from looking in their throat or they're pushing me away from looking in the ear and oftentimes the parents will apologize you know, say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm like, no, actually, it's really good that your kid doesn't like me to stick the tongue depressor in or doesn't like me to use an otoscope because, or doesn't like me to auscultate their chest because if an eight-month-old or a 12-month-old lets you jam an otoscope in or lets you jam a tongue depressor in or doesn't, you know, flinch when you're, you know, auscultating or palpating the belly, that's a bad sign, right? Because that's, that, sh that should elicit a cry, you know, that should elicit some change in tone. If it doesn't, that should be a warning sign. And then finally... That should be a warning. The, the child should cry, but what happens when you hand the child to mom or dad? They should console. They should. They should settle. Yep. So the normal child doesn't want to be examined, doesn't want to be undressed, should resist that somewhat. But after the commotion, after the poking, after the prodding, they should calm in mom or dad's arms. And if they don't, that should be a clue that you know something could be causing pain. And if you've not undressed them, again, look for those things that Dr. Dixon talked about, hernias abscesses, rashes, hair tourniquets, non-accidental trauma, all those things, what could be causing that baby to cry, you know, from an inconsolable, unconsolable standpoint that we may have missed. Couldn't agree more, Casey. And I think that's a key point that could not be uh, overlooked here, which is don't ignore that. If they won't settle, you've got to keep looking. It is something. It's an infection. It's an abscess. It's an injury. 
kids will normally console. Maybe we haven't treated their fever. That's why they're still grizzly. But uh, I think that's a big part of my clinical assessment is making sure I get that kid to the point where they're appropriate and consolable or I keep looking. And then there's diagnoses that, you know, thinking about next step, what happens, you know, you may have that child transport via EMS and you do, you know, good vital signs. You complete your pediatric assessment triangle. Uh, you may, you know, treat with some, you know, antipyretics. You, you know, assess oxygen saturation. You get a good uh, heart rate. You look at capillary refill. Undress the child. You may not see anything. You delivering to Dr. Dixon or I or one of our partners in the emergency department. We may do the same thing and still not find anything. And then we're, you know, moving down that differential diagnosis sort of pathway and then we're starting to think about wow could this be an early appendicitis could this be intussusception there are other intra-abdominal catastrophes that come into play maybe you know we do a further testicular exam and think could this be a testicular torsion in a in a neonate or an infant these things are rare but they happen so you know you may say i don't see anything as the medic i may say i don't see anything as the emergency physician and i may have to take step two, step three, step four down the line, because if that child doesn't console, something's get, going on. You got to keep looking. Does the child have non-accidental and a subdural or yeah. uh, encephalitis, meningitis, something of that sort. So that's just kind of getting down the road on what happens with these kids. But I think part of your good assessment and communication with the other clinician that's taking the patient is key. You know, if you found these things and can't console, that's super important to me. Yep. So that's side one, appearance. Let's move to side two. Talk through work of breathing with the listeners and how you approach assessment of working of breathing. And we're going to operate under the assumption that you listen to the pediatric law and you've got your child, you know, undressed and they're out from under the seven blankets and the onesie and the parka and all the other uh, various layers. Realistically, we, you know, we think about the definition. Yeah, we think about auscultation being first from a, a breathing respiratory exam standpoint, but it's really, really, it's really just watching, though. So yep. let's start with the definition. So things like you hear terms bannered about retractions and flaring and grunting. What are those things? Well, all of them, in a nutshell, they're trying to increase the vital capacity or, and the minute ventilation or both of the kid. So nasal flaring, you see that the, the nostrils flare out at uh, end inspiration. They're trying to increase airflow. Very, very common in, in little infants and neonates. They're obligate nose breathers. Retractions, they can be different places, right? Intercostal, it just describes where you see them. Intercostal, suprasternal or supraclavicular retractions. Grunting, which is kind of that noise you hear, especially in infants, it's an ominous sound. It's kind of a, and what you hear it at end expiration. When you think back to your physiology, when we talked on previous episodes about non-invasive and uh, ventilation and oxygenation, what is that child trying to do? They're trying to recruit alveoli. They're in trouble and they're auto-peeping, right? By grunting, they're, they're, a grunt is kind of an exhalation against a closed glottis, this uh, uh, sound. So what they're doing is they're closing their glottis at end exhalation to try to recruit alveoli. So it's the body's way of trying to compensate for respiratory compromise. Some of the other things, and this really goes throughout all ages, doesn't it, Casey? Any, any tripoding, it's bad at all ages. It's bad in all people. Well, I don't care if this is a pediatric piece, but 
if if I walk in and you know the 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 CHFer is is tripoded over the box fan and it's on full and uh, they're sweaty and diaphoretic, it, it's worrisome. Just like a, a five-year-old kid that's sitting forward, tripoding, drooling, uh, kind of where classically we think of things like tracheitis and uh, uh, epiglottitis, those type of superglottic type infections in that kid. And then lastly, but 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 not. Uh, I'm not trying to admission, I'm neither Dr. Patrick, but a good chest examination. You know, are there wheezes? Are there, is there strider in the upper airway? Are there crackles? Is there absence of breath sounds? Or a silent chest, maybe an asthmatic that's so tight you can't hear any wheezing because they're not moving much air. So remember, these all come with a caveat and the patient has to be undressed. Kind of to run through them again, flaring, retractions, grunting, and position they all can be assessed without ever listening to the chest. And in, in, in this, just a general approach to these teeny tiny patients, I always look, listen, and don't, I don't touch the kid. And I undress and count the respirations while I'm talking to the parents, getting the story. And then I start distracting and see if they'll distract and have an auscultation first before I get them fussy with their ears and all this other stuff. Because once you get them crying by trying to look in their mouth and you know, examining everything else, you're never going to get a good auscultation on these kids. So when we think of the work of breathing side of the triangle, the only one that you can do without undressing the child is auscultation. If you undress the child, then you open up, you know, retractions and flaring and, you know, true position. I guess grunting probably you could do without undressing the patient. But again, the important part here is to consider that auscultation is just a piece of this puzzle and we really need to take the entire package of work of breathing as a whole to really get the the true respiratory status of the child and to be able to see some of these big warning signs so appearance work of breathing a b uh, the last side is going to be the the circulation side of the triangle and realistically you know this is one that is fairly similar to what we're looking for in adults you know this is pediatric patients are just small adults is sort of the one of those mantras that goes around. But from a circulatory standpoint, what are we looking for? Well, the same things we look for in a poorly, you know, uh, perfusing adult patient. And we're looking for pallor, capillary refill. You know, I feel like capillary refill from a teaching standpoint is something we should really be just two seconds quick, te- t- you know, testing in all of our patients. And you're going to see hundreds and hundreds of normal before you see the one abnormal. And then when you see that delay, it becomes more obvious. If you're just checking capillary refill in folks you think may have poor perfusion, you're not going to have as many in the in the database file. So that's one I, I from for a learner standpoint, younger medics out there, check capillary refill in everybody. Make it a part of your exam. That way when you see abnormal, you recognize it. Modeling is another exam finding. Again, just like some of our grunting and startle and moreau reflex, we'll put some links to some photos of modeling in the show notes. You know, this is a kind of a marbling appearance of the skin that uh, can, can be a marker of poor perfusion, not always. Um, again, cyanosis. And there's oftentimes in the, in the PEDS text and some PEDS discussion, we talk about central cyanosis versus acrocyanosis or peripheral cyanosis. I, I don't like to parse hairs here. All cyanosis is bad from an emergency provider standpoint until proven otherwise. And we can sort out, you know, that on down the line. But if you see something you think is cyanosis, that's that's going to go in the worrisome column in my book. And then obviously, if it's a 
trauma situation and we notice external bleeding and, you know, pressure and tourniquets and the normal approach depending on severity. But again, for us to see pallor, to test cap refill, to see cyanosis or modeling, child's got to be undressed, right? So we're going to keep beating that horse until it's good and dead. Um, so that, that takes us through all three sides, appearance, uh, work of breathing and circulation, A, B, and C. So we've assessed all three of those. We've undressed the child. We've made them angry. They're crying. Uh, the parents want them back. Now we've got to hand them back to the parents or we've got to put them on the stretcher or whatever the next step is. And now we've got to start a differential diagnosis. So how do we use the triangle to progress to a differential? So I think this is a key point, Casey, because it's, it's really once we do the initial stabilization and we get the story and we do a thorough assessment of the pediatric assessment triangle and their clinical examination, we can really put this together to try to figure out what's the most likely or at least the top couple in the differential. And I'm gonna give you a couple of examples of, of how you can use this to narrow your differential. Say if you have one side, let's take the breathing side of the pediatric assessment triangle, right? So the work of breathing is abnormal, but everything else is normal. The appearance is normal, the, the circulatory is normal, that's just respiratory distress. So, you know, your same differentials from there. An upper airway croup, uh, uh, pneumonia, some type of, of septic illness, could be a, a early cardiomyopathy in, in a child, some type of CHF, and you add abnormal work of breathing plus an abnormal appearance, that kind of takes you down that, that diagnostic pathway or that, that spectrum of disease to say, hey, this is a kid in impending respiratory failure. So abnormal work of breathing plus abnormal appearance, you think of things that would lead you to have respiratory failure. So uh, asthma, infections, cardiac-related uh, abnormalities. And if you put all three of them together, so now you have abnormal work of breathing, Casey. You have an abnormal appearance, and you have signs of poor circulation. That's a peri-arrest kid. And the differential for there is, is kind of similar. It all started with respiratory. You have to put it with the story. But I think that that's a kid, you know, what I'm describing here is a kid that I'm kind of worried about a little bit more worried about calling, calling for backup, right? Yeah. I'm calling for help. This is a peri-arrest. This is an urgent patient that we know that we're going to have interventions on. So that's kind of using starting with just one side of the pediatric assessment triangle and building your differential if, as you see, more abnormalities in the other sides. And you can do that with either side of it. So if you have, say, circulation, right, an abnormal circulatory finding in a kid with normal work of breathing uh, and a normal appearance, what could that be? That could be an early, early sepsis, some early sign of shock, and there's lots of different types of shock. Remember, we can listen to another podcast for that, uh, but it, you think of sepsis or distributive shock, an obstructive shock like a, a, a tamponade or a PE, uh, a, um, a cardiogenic shock or a pump primary pump failure or a volume failure, either blood or, um, or fluid just being dehydrated. So circulation abnormalities, maybe early shock for perfusion, maybe the child's been vomiting and dehydrated. Add that circulatory findings, so maybe mottled skin with not looking good. Now the kid's appearance, their tone is poor, they're not terribly responsive. You go to examine them, they're not terribly worried about it. Uh, maybe with a background of diarrhea and vomiting. That's a kid that I think of, gosh, is this 
an, a, a, a severe shock, right? Now I have abnormal uh, mental status and the kid's not acting normally, plus the model skin. It really kind of takes me down that worried pathway of, is this a, a progressing to a more severe shock state? And then if you add appearance with that, you know, I'm sorry, with the, if you just take their appearance, everything else is normal, but the kid doesn't look right. You know, their tone is abnormal, they're floppy. That kind of leads you to a different differential. Their work of breathing is normal. Their circulation is normal. That leads me more to a CNS or a metabolic, always, always, always in these kids with any mental status, glucose assessment, uh, and assessment for neurologic causes. So that's just, it, it's, it's not exact, but I think it really helps you. And if you guys go back and listen to kind of the, um, uh, the serial killers, it really is kind of the essence of what we do here, which is we, we're not given the diagnosis on, on the run sheet. We're given uh, a febrile infant or a, a medical a respiratory call, and we have to work backward to create that differential diagnosis because all those serial killers live within that one chief complaint of a respiratory complaint, an altered mental status, a chest pain. I think you hit on one that we've definitely talked about in the serial killers, altered mental status discussion and that is in an altered patient you know endocrine's on that list and an altered child is you know this is one where there is definite uh you know congruence between the pediatric and adult population if you've got an altered patient no age range in there we want to know the blood glucose so that is definitely uh one one to remember um and you know if you have all three sides of the triangle that are off and there's a diaper that needs to be changed, and it's not the patient. It's usually mine, the provider. That should be a definite warning sign that you've got a peri-arrest sick patient. So just some other uh, PEDS assessment pearls, uh, sort of some tidbits before we wrap up. Beware of tachycardia and the pediatric shock cliff. You know, there's there's tons of, uh, uh, tons of literature out there that, you know, once patients in the pediatric world get to the hypotensive, range, you're in big trouble. Um, there was a, a 2018 study from uh, trauma and acute care surgery that looked at 64,000 pediatric patients and almost, and these, and these are trauma patients, but uh, it illustrates the point pretty well. In those 64,000 trauma patients, the ones that became hypotensive, almost half of those died. Right. So if you're waiting around for the pediatric patient to have a low pressure to say it's shock, you're probably waiting too long. So if you've got a kid, again, this is where the triangle comes into play and we pair it with the vital signs. If you've got a kid that's got pallor or you got cap refill delayed, you know, are they a little, little modeled and their heart rate's 220, right? So you've got an abnormal vital sign, you've got a tachycardic kid and you've got signs of poor circulation on exam. That's where that single-sided early shock don't wait on the blood pressure or you're going to be in the severe shock yeah, stage. I would not spend a lot of time trying to put the uh, sub one-year-old blood pressure cuff in the patient. It's probably the least important bottle sign and part of your assessment. Now, I'll, I'll get Twitter bomb for that, but it's 100% true. You know, you can if you follow this pediatric assessment triangle and you beware tachycardias along with any abnormality of a side of the triangle, that's an ominous sign the kid. So be sure to pair the, the moral here is to pair your assessment with the vitals and, you know, use a reference. I, I can't keep all the ages and heart rates and blood pressures safe. You know, use a reference. These are in the MCHD 
uh, protocol app. And so, I, and I'll I'll throw in a shameless plug for our colleague Peter Antevi in the Hantevi app. But here at MCHD, we extensively use for all pediatric patients, and certainly a sick pediatric patient, we whip out the Hantevi app. Gives us the drug doses, gives us the fluid boluses, it gives us all everything we're going to need, and it also gives us the normals. Right, so it's super duper important. I'm not promoting one product over another, um, but we found that incredibly useful. And and there's lots of literature out there that says that we, when we use a reference that's easy to get to, we decrease error and we increase the margin of safety in caring for these patients. And remember to again pair that with your assessment. There was a 2017 annual study that looked at an electronic vital sign tool and using that in a pediatric emergency setting. And when you paired the electronic tool with clinical judgment, and again, no electronic tool, whether it's you, you name whichever one you want, they're not going to be able to assess for work of breathing, right? Because work of breathing, respiratory rate may be relatively normal, but if you see flaring, that should be concerning. Uh, you're not going to get pallor always out of tachycardia. Um, the appearance, patient may have normal vital signs and a nasty appearance. So, you have to pair the sides of the triangle with the vital signs. And there is evidence that shows that those two together are better at assessing in this study. They were looking at septic patients and they were more accurate at seeing the septic patients early when they paired together both vital sign abnormalities with pediatric general assessment exam findings. Always, always, always keep non-accidental trauma in your differential. It's a nasty, evil world out there. And it's sad that we have to do this, but it's, it's always always should be on your list in a, in a sick child, in a crying, inconsolable child, um, in a child where the numbers just don't add up. Undress, think about pattern bruising, you know, think about, you know, bruises of different age. You can listen back at our non-accidental trauma podcast early on for more information there. Always keep talks and ingestions in your differential, you know, especially today with things like vape juice floating around everyone's house and, and uh, you know, essential oils and some of those bad things that, that kids can, and Tide Pods, I saw a Tide Pod eater this weekend, that, that's, that happens. So keep that on your, on your differential. Beware of preemies, you know, preemies are, are always high risk. Uh, patients, just like in adult patients, the more complex their comorbidities, the higher risk they are. So if you've got a kid with a congenital heart defect or you've got a kid with, um, you know, that's recently come from the OR for their congenital heart defect. Um, so post-operative patients, any, any, of those, any of those complex kids, uh, you know, kids with syndromic abnormalities, with genetic abnormalities, those are always higher risk. And, you know, believe parents. I see this all, all the time in the emergency department from various levels of providers, nurses, uh, doctors, paramedics. For some reason, some folks have this inclination to almost reflexively not believe parents and, you know, to think parents are crazy. And listen, when your kid's sick, most parents are half crazy. That's part of being a normal parent. So we should expect that as emergency providers. I don't think that should come as a shock. If you think your kid's sick enough to go to the ER, you're probably going to be pretty anxious, pretty over the top, and pretty protective. That's wired in our lizard brains, you know. That's what moms and dads do to protect their children in all, you know, in all walks of nature. So expect that. And if the parents tell you there was a fever, believe there was a fever. If the parents tell you that the kid was, you know, cyanotic and limp, believe the kid was cyanotic and limp and think about, you know, bruise, for example. 
if there was a you know there was an abnormal spell and the child was shaking that probably was a seizure until proven otherwise so don't don't assume that parents are blowing things out of proportion just because and don't get me wrong as i know you've seen this sometimes they are but let's start with the assumption that they're not worst first and do a good exam do a good assessment take good set of vital signs undress the kid give them the benefit of the doubt before you start passing that judgment couldn't agree more casey i think that that not listening to patients parents uh caregivers is fraught with peril and it sets you up for other ends of the spectrum that we always want to avoid and you know i, I listen to enough med mal cases to know that if a parent or a family member feels like you're not listening to them that's often the start of tons of these why did you end up in a lawsuit because you didn't Sure. didn't listen to him from the start. And so that's a bad, bad foot to get off on. So let's take it home. Know the pediatric general assessment triangle. When you're running on kids and you know you're going to a, an eight-month-old or a 12-month-old or a three-month-old, start your run loading in the truck with appearance, work of breathing, circulation. Look and assess all three of these sides and the caveats that exist and the little tidbits in each side don't just wait till you have a kid you think sick before you use it. Use this in normal kids. It's going to make the abnormal obvious. Grunting is bad news, right? If nature thinks that auto peep is needed, then we're headed down the, the wrong path. Assume all modeling and all cyanosis are bad until proven otherwise. Those hairs can be parsed by the, uh, by the inpatient pediatricians and the, and the specialists. And then use that triangle. Be able to step back from it and use that for your differential diagnosis and know that a majority of the triangle is impossible to assess if you don't what? Undress the child. That leads us to a nice spot to close it up. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I think it's a great review, uh, Casey. Appreciate you bringing this one. All right, as always, if you have questions or concerns or ideas for future topics, please shoot us an email at the podcast email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. Please leave us a review where you listen to podcasts. And thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.